Jesus sees how self-deceived and self-righteous this man is. He actually thinks he's kept the commandments. So Jesus pulls out the measuring stick of the law, and he says, all right, let's see how you're doing keeping the law. Now, what he is doing is he is using the law the way Romans 3.20 says the law should be used. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Stop right there. That tells you that Jesus is not teaching that you are justified by keeping the law. Romans clearly says you are not justified. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law. So Jesus is not teaching salvation by law keeping. What's he doing? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus sees this man's heart. He's full of self-righteousness. I've kept the commandments all my life. Jesus says, all right, let's measure you. So he has a knowledge of his sin. Right? That's what he is doing. Now, somebody might say, wait a minute. With that interpretation, doesn't that mean Jesus is deceiving the man by telling him that he should keep the commandments to get into heaven? No. No. Why? Because it is theoretically true. If you can keep the commandments perfectly, you would go to heaven. But the fact is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Therefore, keeping the commandments, how are you doing keeping the commandments? If we're all honest with ourselves, we'll say, we're not doing very well keeping the commandments. What must I do to be saved? Oh, there's a Savior. So Jesus isn't deceiving him. Jesus isn't lying to him. He's saying, how are you doing keeping the commandments? If you keep them perfectly, you will get in. Oh, nobody keeps them perfectly. Now, you go, isn't this obvious? Does anybody teach that keeping the commandments will get you into heaven? Well, let me give you a quote. Um, here's an actual quote from a theologian. Jesus tells the young man, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So this person who's teaching is actually teaching on this passage. Jesus tells the young man, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. In this way, a close connection is made between eternal life and obedience to God's commandments. God's commandments show man the path of life, and they lead to it. From the very lips of Jesus to the new Moses, man is once again given the commandments of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments. Now look at what he says here. Jesus himself definitively confirms them, the Ten Commandments, and proposes them to us as the way and condition of salvation. So this theologian is actually teaching that Jesus is teaching, keep the commandments as a condition of salvation. Who do you think that is? Anybody want to guess? Pope John Paul, in his infallible encyclical Veritatis Splendor, which is the splendor of truth. So when I say Protestants teach you're saved by faith alone and Catholics teach you're saved by faith and works, and you go, oh, come on, I've never heard that. Yes, they do. 
All right. Now, to be fair, uh, Roman Catholics teach that under the influence of the grace of God, that grace produces obedience and works, and it's that, those grace-empowered works that justify you. So they're, they're not teaching that you're saved by works and your own effort. It's God-empowered works, but they do teach that keeping the commandments in the power of God is a path of salvation. I say it's wrong. I say it's a false gospel. I say that you are justified. No human being will be justified in his sight. And Jesus is using the law to expose his sin and his need for a savior. Okay? Now, um, don't mishear me. Some people say, so what do you Protestants teach? Do you really teach that works have nothing to do with salvation? No. They have nothing to do with justification. Justification is when God declares you right in his sight. My works, your works, have nothing to do with your justification, with God declaring you right. But they do have a role to play, and this is point number two. Salvation is by faith alone, and I should, rather than the word and here, I should put but. Salvation is by faith alone, but works are the inevitable fruit, proof, and consequence of salvation. In other words, you are saved by faith alone, not by works, not by anything you do. But if you're truly saved, the inevitable result, the fruit, the proof, the consequence of salvation will be a changed life of works. Okay? We've seen this verse before, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Could it be any clearer that your works do not save you. They do not justify you. But once you're saved, okay, and the reason, the reason our works cannot be part of our salvation is we will have nothing to boast about in heaven so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is very important that we put our good works not in the justification column, but in the sanctification column. If you, if you say that your works are necessary to be declared right, then guess what? Your works better be perfect. And if your works need to be perfect, there's no assurance of salvation. In fact, there's no salvation because who of us has perfect works? The rich young ruler thought he was perfect. But if you're that arrogant, you're far from the kingdom of God. Your works must flow from your salvation. They better be there. But imperfect works flow. And those imperfect works are in the, in the sanctification category. Now, while we've got Catholicism on this side, you've got, uh, which, which says your works contribute to your justification, You've got biblical Protestantism that teaches that you're saved by faith alone and works confirm your salvation. Let's go over to the extreme side over here. There's a, 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 a theological view. Called, I call it easy believism. Easy believism says you're saved by faith alone and you may not have any works. All right? 
Your, your life, you can say, I believe in Jesus, I go to church, and you can live like the devil. And, and this view says you are so obviously saved by faith alone that whether your life has changed or not, guess what? Um, it doesn't matter because salvation is by faith alone. Now, I think our passage today refutes not only the idea that says, Works are necessary for justification. I think it refutes the idea that says you can call yourself a believer and have no works. Now, here's what I did last week. I looked at the passage, and I said, here's what Jesus is doing. He is using the law, the Ten Commandments, to convict this man of his sin. And then he goes, well, I've kept him perfectly. So then Jesus says, go sell everything and come follow me. What was he doing? He was continuing to convict him that he wasn't keeping the law. Commandment number one, have no other gods. He's saying, your God is your money. So to see if you're really keeping the law, go sell it all and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. Now, the easy believer says all Jesus was doing was he was trying to continue to convict him that he wasn't keeping the law and that he should be uh, driven to, uh, to Christ as Savior. But he wasn't really expecting anyone, he wasn't expecting this guy particularly to literally sell everything. He was just showing him that he was a sinner. In other words, all Jesus wanted him to do is go, oh, I haven't kept the law. Okay, I need a Savior, and I'm not really going to sell anything. I would say Jesus was using the Ten Commandments to convict him. He was calling him to sell everything and follow Jesus, yes, to continue to convict him. And he was really calling him to do it. Not just to feel bad about his sin, but he was really calling this man to sell everything and follow Jesus. Now, I, I would point out that in this case, he knew that this was this man's particular idol. Not everybody has money as their idol. A lot of us do. But in this case, he was literally calling this man to do it because that was his literal idol. In other words, he's saying, you can't come follow me with an idol under your hand. Drop your idol. Okay. Now, um, here's a question. Is the call for him to sell everything and follow actually expected, or is it just showing his need for a savior? Well, that leads to a, a, a bigger question. When somebody comes to Christ, must they just believe in Jesus, or are they expected to repent and forsake their sin. The easy believer side says, all you need to do is believe you're a sinner, believe Jesus is the Savior, believe it in your head, you're in. My question is, what does the scripture say? Is there also an expectation that we repent and forsake our sins? And this leads me to point number three. While we are saved by faith alone, true faith is always a repentant faith. Is it legitimate for me as a preacher of the gospel 
to call people to believe in Christ and repent of their sin. The easy believist side would say, I am adding, adding works to the gospel if I call you to forsake your sin. They would say, that's a false gospel. You're adding works to the gospel. So I, I want to say, does Scripture give us a picture, just believe and you're in? Or does Scripture, as we see the gospel being preached, call people to repent? Let's just take a look at some Scriptures. Very first words of Jesus' ministry. Mark 1.15. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 5.32, Jesus sums up his whole ministry. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to belief. No, to repentance. Luke 13.3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Paul says in Acts 17.30 in Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to believe. No, to repent. And then Paul, as he's on trial, he's before Felix and Agrippa, uh, and um, who's the other one? Felix, Agrippa, and some other guy. Festus, Festus, yeah. Um, once he says that, this sums up his ministry, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Another one he said, but declaring first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So we see that throughout Scripture, the gospel call is, yes, believe, but also repent. Now, legitimate question. How is that not adding works to the gospel? Well, point number four, repentance is no more a meritorious work than faith itself. What I mean by a meritorious work, the idea that by doing something, I am earning something from God. Faith is not a meritorious work, and neither is repentance. Okay? Both faith and repentance are gifts from God. You see, and here's, here's where it really, uh, it, it does boil down to the Calvin-Arminian issue. Arminians believe that faith is human, a human thing that we do, Calvinists believe that faith is given by God. And if it's something we do, then it better be pretty minimal. Right? We better just call people to believe the facts in your head about the gospel. Because that's all an unbeliever can do, and that's what saves you. A Calvinist, on the other hand, says no. Faith is not just a human thing. It's a divine thing where God changes your whole being. And what I want you to see is that in Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it's the gift of God. The word this, what's it pointing to? Many people say it's pointing to faith. Others would say, because it's a, it's a different gender than the word faith, that it's referring to the entire package of salvation. Either way, either way you read it, faith is a gift of God. And guess what? So is repentance. In Acts 
11.18, Peter explains how Cornelius and his whole family came to believe. And the Jewish believers were listening to him and they said, uh, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, if your view of saving faith is this, and this is how many people look at it. Oh, we're saved by faith in Jesus. You're saved by faith alone. Therefore, let's strip faith down to its smallest element. And then it's up to the preacher to use his clever uh, persuasiveness, his salesmanship, to get as many people as possible to agree to the facts of the gospel. And then we declare them all saved. That's not my view of what my job is. My job is to explain that we are all sinners. And we love our sin so much that nobody would repent of our sin unless God changed our heart. And all who will flee from their sin and turn to Christ and trust in Him will be saved. But that's impossible because we love our sin so much. So I can't persuade you. I can yell, I can scream, I can sweat, but I can't make you believe. I can't talk you into salvation like I can talk you into buying a Honda. Sorry for any car salesmen out there. Okay. Salvation is a supernatural act, right? which is point number five. Saving faith and repentance are simultaneous supernatural works of regeneration. You go, what's that word? Regeneration simply means being born again. It's God changing your heart. It's not me persuading you to agree to the equation of sinners need a Savior. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe that? Good, you're in. That doesn't save you by mentally uh, buying into that. What saves you is when you truly see that you're a sinner and you're going to hell and your only hope is that Jesus died on the cross to fully pay for your sins and he offers you the free gift of salvation and you rest in him and you truly do it in your heart. That is saving faith. In fact, saving faith, saving repentance is all a part of a big mix of a thing called regeneration. When the Old Testament prophets spoke of a coming covenant called the new covenant they talked about God giving us a new heart and here's what it says in Ezekiel 36 this is Ezekiel talking about the new covenant God says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness uncleanness uncleannesses and from all your idols look at that you forsake your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. See, it's not just a, I will give you a new equation to plug into your brain. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and uh, give you a heart of flesh. So it's not just equation uh, transformation. It's heart transformation. Salvation involves God giving you a new heart. And then what's the inevitable result? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will turn from your wickedness and you will follow 
what God wants you to follow. It's all part of a supernatural change of heart. When we reduce it to nothing more than, oh, I heard that Protestants believe you're saved by faith. Faith is a mental activity. What do I need to to buy into? Well, what you need to buy into is Jesus died and rose from the dead. Are you you with me? Yeah, I I, I guess I buy that. Good, you're saved. Congratulations. No. Salvation is God changing your heart. How do you know you're saved? You have faith in Christ and you turn from your sin. Now, um, the easy believist side would say this. I agree with you that repentance is all part of the package. But you're assuming that repentance is a turning from sin. They would say that repentance is not a turning from sin. In fact, the Greek word is metanoia. Meta, change, noia, mind. It's just a change of mind. So when the scriptures call people to, ch- to repent, all it's doing is it's calling uh, the sinner to change his mind about Jesus. Before you didn't see him as the Savior, now you do see him as the Savior. In other words, they would say that faith and repentance are synonymous. Faith is believing that Jesus is your Savior. Repentance is changing your mind and believing that Jesus is your Savior. Well, you can't play word games like that. You can't just pull out the dictionary definition of the word. Strawberry. What's that? A berry with straws in it. No. Um, Metanoia. Yeah, technically, it's derived from change of mind. But as it is used in Scripture, here's why you need to learn how to use eSword and right-click on the number and do a word study on the word so you can see how it is used in different contexts. Okay? You go, oh, that's way too... No, it's not. Download eSword for free and figure out how to do a word study. And you will find that repentance is not just a change of mind. True repentance is willingness to forsake sin and idols, not just a change of mind. So, let's, let's find an occurrence of the word repentance. Here in Matthew 12, 41. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh, oh, Jonah, we just studied Jonah, right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So remember, Jonah went to this wicked city of Nineveh, and his his message was really heartwarming. Forty days and you're dirt. God's going to destroy you. That was his message. Okay. So the men of Nineveh, and then they repented. Okay. The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation. What generation? Jesus' generation, where he went around healing people and doing miracles and preaching the gospel. And what did they do? Yawn. They were bored with Jesus. He says, the Ninevites are going to rise up on the day of judgment and condemn you. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than Jonah. So whatever they did in the book of Jonah is called repentance. So as we go back to the book of Jonah, here's what we need to ask. Did the Ninevites just change their minds? 
or did they turn from their evil? Well, in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He says, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And the king calls for a fast. He calls for people to be put in sackcloth and ashes. And then God looks down, and what does he see? Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Repentance is not just a change of mind. It's a transformation of heart. It's a supernatural transformation of heart. Why is it not adding works to the gospel? Because it's God doing it. Now, the response, yes, the response, the change of behavior, the change of passions, the ch- those are all works that flow from the change of heart. But repentance is more than just a change of mind. Now, let's go back to the rich young ruler. Jesus was actually calling the man to forsake his love of money because that's what happens at salvation. In other words, when you're truly saved, you drop your idols. And again, this man's particular idol was his money. That's why Jesus calls him specifically, and he doesn't call everybody else, to literally give up their money. He does call you in principle to let go of it. But in this case, he literally called him to let go of his money because that was his idol. But what we see throughout Scripture, when people truly come to salvation, they let go of their idols. And in a handful of cases, we see people let go of their money who aren't even called to let go of their money. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The Jews hated their fellow Jews who were tax collectors because they were basically using the power of Rome to steal money from their own fellow Jews. So Zacchaeus, little short guy, he's heard about Jesus, and Jesus is coming to town. He climbs up in a tree, he looks down, and Jesus looks up at him and says, Hey, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And we're not even told what they talked about. But at one point, Zacchaeus announces this, Luke 19, 8. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And then Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Did he mean he's saved because he bought his way into heaven? No. He's trusted in Christ and the immediate result is a change of heart. And he goes, money no longer has a hold on me. I want to give half my stuff away. I don't need it. It's no longer my God. There's another story of a tax collector in Mark 2.14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. Who's Levi? Matthew, the guy who wrote Matthew's Gospel. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. Oh, so Matthew, his other name is Levi, and he's a tax collector. He lived for money, too. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him immediately. Oh, well, you know, Pastor, it's a sanctification process. You can't expect people to immediately change. It takes years. Really? 
Now, I, I understand that, that sanctification is progressive, but the heart change is immediate. You cannot go on living and loving your idols and call yourself a Christian. There's an immediate change of heart. And there's, there, there's usually big change. And then the rest of your life, there is continued progressive change. And another reason we know that Jesus was literally calling uh, the rich young ruler to forsake his idol and to give up his money is as Jesus goes on, he turns to the disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What's he saying? The heart change, yeah. If you just look at, at trying to talk people into giving more money, that's why the, the whole high pressure, give more money to the church uh, thing, what a burden. Churches that are built on the pastor who has to continually uh, manipulate people into giving more money and more money, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'd rather have God change your heart. And then we would have to tell you, please stop giving so much. We don't know what to do with the money. By the way, we're not there yet. But um, <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Okay. Uh, but God changes the heart. It can't be a program. It can't be manipulation. Right? So then... Um, Peter says, <clears throat> Peter, Jesus, Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's in it for us? Peter wants to know. Because he did. He, he, just like Matthew left the text booth, Peter was fishing. He had a nice little fishing operation going on up there in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks by and says, follow me. He leaves it, and now he's following Jesus around. And there are days they go without food. So Peter says, hey, we, we've done this. What do we get? Jesus said to them, now notice Jesus didn't say, oh, come on, you didn't really leave everything. Jesus assumes that he did leave everything. Which is another argument for why when he tells the rich young ruler to do the same thing, that he's literally talking about you know, giving everything. Peter says, all right, what do we get? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, okay, when he comes back, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Whoa! Little fisherman Peter left his little fishing operation, didn't really know what he was getting into, and he will sit on a throne and judge Israel. What do you think's in it for you? You're not earning salvation. Jesus earned your salvation. But if you let go of your idol and follow Jesus, what does he have in store for you? And that leads to the last point. The rewards far outweigh the losses. 
In fact, Jesus does tell you this. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. So here, some of you in this room have lost your, your family because of your following Jesus. They think you're nuts. They think you've gotten religion. You're, yeah, maybe you're, you're still going to Thanksgiving and Christmas meal, but they talk about you behind their backs behind your back. You've lost your family. Some of you have said, you know what? I can't continue making money in this dishonest lifestyle. So I'll go get an honest job. You've lost your lands. You've done it for my name's sake. So everyone who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Or you can keep it now. Those of you who are into investments, man, that's a good return, hundredfold. Or you can keep it now. What's, what's, the, what's the better return on investment? Here on earth, keep it. Or a hundredfold. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let me close with this. Um, Over in India, they have a problem. Monkeys. Monkeys will go into your house and steal your food. And... um, you chase them out, and they've got a loaf of bread under one arm, and you know, little monkeys. So they figured out how to catch a monkey. You get a gourd, and you hollow it out, just with a, with a hole big enough for his hand to reach in, and you put a peanut in there. And that monkey comes in the window, and he goes, Oh, what's in the gourd? Peanuts. They love peanuts, and they reach in, and they grab the peanut, and they can't get their hand out. And they aren't going to let go of that peanut. And you can come and do whatever you want to do with that monkey. You can capture the monkey, throw him in the monkey trash. Because he's so stupid, he won't let go of the peanut. Some of you are so stupid, you won't let go of the peanut. You'd rather go to hell. What's the peanut? Whatever your idol is. Could be money. Could be your job. Could be your reputation. Could be your pornography. Doesn't have to be illicit sinful things. It could just be good things that God has given. But rather than seeing them as a good gift from God, they have become your God. Drop the peanut. Turn and trust and follow him. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, thank you for this passage. It's a tough passage, but it forces us to systematize and to uh, compare it with all of Scripture. And Lord, we, we see the big picture. Your law convicts us of our sin and our idolatry. And you call us to drop it all and follow you. Because it's all worth it, knowing you. 
here on earth and for all eternity. And on top of it, Lord, you throw in rewards for what we forsake. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would move us to drop our idols and turn to you and embrace you, believe you, and may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.